0: And the scripture is from Revelation 2, 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teacher of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, eating food sacrificed to idols, and committing immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. And would you turn to 881 in your hymnal and read along with the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate,
1: Thank you, Mel. There was a young author. uh, His name was Joshua Harris. And he wrote a book uh, called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. I know my daughters read that in the 90s and kind of was being affirmed as a very powerful young gospel preacher, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving preacher. And we even used his book uh, Stop Dating the Church. When we first uh, moved into this church building in 2006, you all remember that? And then about a month ago, uh, I heard that Joshua not only kissed uh, dating goodbye, but he kissed his wife goodbye, he kissed the church goodbye, and he kissed Jesus goodbye. He renounced his face. It's what we call being apostate or apostasy, and it's very similar To what was going on in this church called Pergamum. And that's the church that we're on today. The third church. It was Ephesus, Smyrna. And today we're looking at this church, Pergamum, the great city of Pergamum. And before we get into Revelation 2, 12 to 17, that Mel just read a little bit about this city, a description of Pergamum. It was built on this great mountain about uh, 1,000 feet up, which is a very high point for this region. I've said, Mary and I, along with some others uh, from this church, we were there. We were up on that, that uh, they call it uh, Acropolis. Uh, Acropolis, it means simply high point, a high place. The high place for this region is Pergamum. It's the Acropolis. And in its day, Pergamum was uh, anywhere from 60,000 to 150,000 people in history. And archaeology says it was a very affluent city, uh, the amphitheater that uh, we saw there uh, could see 10,000 people, and being the high point, you could see all over the valley, and this made it a very safe place. Uh, so there were fortified walls around this city. It was such a safe place that Alexander the Great actually stored what was perhaps like billions of dollars worth of gold in Pergamum. And because this uh, city was fortified, it was very secure because you could see your enemies coming for miles. And the most wealthy and affluent citizens lived at the top, you know, at the Acropolis. And they lived at the top of this mountain and they enjoyed the views and the safety that it provided. And most of the commoners, the peasants, they lived down the hill and they lived down in the villages. And they generally would not come up to the top except for some significant events So on the Acropolis, there would be plays, and there would be entertainment, and uh, various sorts, uh, and various kinds of uh, recreation. And in that day, they were very polytheistic, which means many gods, and they were very pluralistic. And you'd have lots of goddesses and gods and that you could worship, and people would come to the high place to do just that, as well as entertainment and prostitution. And this was a little bit of a party town. It was kind of like the Vegas of the region, and people would come here to do things that they, they shouldn't. And you had the altar of Zeus, you know, the temple of Zeus. And then you had the temple of Dionysus, the goddess of wine, and people would come here for like drinking parties and brothels, and they would come here for shows or entertainment and music. And at the high point, you know, at the top of the Acropolis was the emperor emperor's image, and He was worshipped as a god. So imagine in its glory. You know, some 2,000 years ago, Pergamon was this magnificent city. It was the center of lots of worship. So Zeus was worshipped there. The goddess Athena was worshipped here. As I already said, Dionysus was worshipped here. This was the center of worship of the Roman Empire for the region. And so sacrifices would be made to various gods and goddesses. And then down the hill... There was something called the asclepian, uh, which means healing. And so it was basically one of the first uh, like spas in the history of the world. They had, like, dream therapy there before Freud. Uh, they had an auditorium that would seat like, 3,500 people who would come in for lectures. They had sleep chambers underground. They used water therapy. They used music for therapy. They had lots of, like, alternative healing. And the symbol of that area was the serpent, uh, which for us is very interesting, like, biblically. And they also thought in one particular spring... And it may have been the, they thought it might have been the, the fountain of youth, and that's what the people believed in that day. And so you would have very wealthy people li- living up on top on the Acropolis, and then you'd have very hurting people come to the healing center where they would seek this alternative uh, treatment, alternative medicine, like a few thousand years ago, was centered right here in ancient Pergamum. And like I said, Mary and I, we were there. And part of that was funded by the very affluent citizens who lived in the fortified city up on the high place. It gives you a little bit of uh, understanding to the the history and archaeology of the city. And also, it had a library, 200,000 volumes in this library. And when Mark Anthony conquered the city, he took all the volumes and he gave it to his lover, who was Cleopatra. So imagine if Jesus wrote a letter To Calvary Church. And he did so decades after ascending back into heaven. And you've just been living your life and doing your thing, and all of a sudden you realize that Jesus is actually paying attention to our church. And he knows what we're doing and what we're not doing. And he has an opinion about it. And he writes these letters to the seven churches. And this is what he writes to the church at Pergamum through the pen of the Holy Spirit, inspired John. And so in Revelation 2, 12 to 17, it says, and to the angel of the church at Pergamum. And you're going to hear a few uh, things echoed in each of these seven letters. Uh, one is that each church has an angel. You know, each church has physical leaders like elders, pastors, deacons, and, and, and so on. And it has spiritual leaders, Uh Angels that are appointed as ministers and messengers to represent God, to spiritually, like, protect the church, to guard it against false teaching and, like, demonic attack. And this is very important to recognize that a church is filled with people. But ultimately, the church is governed by God. And what we're doing as the church of Jesus Christ is not just, like, physical life together, but spiritual life together. And God appoints to the church an angel, And whatever church you attend has an angel, has a spirit being created by God, commissioned with the express purpose of protecting and leading and serving your local church. Jesus is speaking to the church here at Pergamum. And we see that Jesus knows. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what every church is doing in his risen, ascended, ruling, omnipotent position. He sees, he knows everyone and everything, and the church doesn't belong to you, and it doesn't belong to me, and it doesn't belong to us. Every local church ultimately belongs to Jesus. The church is his bride, and he is paying careful attention to the faithfulness and to the unfaithfulness in every church. And so it starts with Jesus giving certain words of encouragement. I just call it approval. Look at verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. And so Jesus starts with certain encouragements and like an approval he says that they remain Christians despite suffering physically as well as spiritually and he says that they have been persecuted and that day you would be persecuted because there are more than like 50 gods and goddesses worshiped in the area and when you said no there's only one god and his name is Jesus you're going to get a little resistance. And they were persecuted, like, governmental, governmentally because there was an emperor in that day. And we've talked about this uh, when I went to uh, the church at Ephesus. His name was Domitian. And he was a violent man. He was an ungodly man. And he had some successes, you know, to be fair. But the people really didn't like him as a ruler. Even his own wife plotted his murder to have him killed. And Domitian decided that he was God. How's that for an ego trip? I'm God, you know. Domitian decided I'm just going to declare myself God. And so he ascribed to himself titles like Lord and God and Savior. And you would have to offer sacrifices to him and worship him as God above any and every other God. And so you could worship whatever God or gods you wanted, but you had to worship the Roman Emperor. And if you didn't, you could be persecuted, you could be put to death. And so for the Christians to say, no, Lord God, Savior, that's Jesus, that meant that they were at odds with the government. And there was uh, persecution and and martyrdom and, and murder of Christians there. And so their suffering is very real. And Jesus acknowledged that. They have physical suffering. They were ostracized. They were rejected by those who are Jews in the synagogue. They were rejected by those who are in the government because they, they don't worship the the emperor and that's seen as being kind of like anti, uh, nationalistic and they're also rejected by the other religions and the other spiritualities and the worship of Athena and Dionysus and Zeus and the other gods and goddesses and so the Christians were very much persecuted and Jesus mentions Antipas. Did you see that at the beginning? Antipas, who was martyred. He was killed because he believed in Jesus. And Jesus speaks well of Antipas. And that was probably not his birth name. Instead, it was probably his conversion name as, you know, becoming a Christian. And not the Bible, but history tells us that he was put in a brass bowl and slowly roasted. And that's how they killed him. He was slow roasted in a brass bowl. And that's how Antipas died. And he was a member of the church here at Pergamum. And so he was obviously, you know, probably loved by the people and he served as a great testimony of faithfulness despite the cost of his life. And the resurrected Jesus even knows that Antipas had suffered and ultimately had been murdered and and martyred. And so he mentions him by name. And so in doing that, he's lifting up this one man saying, many of you are unfaithful, but there are some faithful people here, just like Antipas. And the name Antipas means one who suffers in the place of another. And so Antipas is kind of like Jesus. Now, no one's exactly like Jesus, but Jesus died in our place for our sins, and so he suffered in our place. And Antipas then suffered in the place of Christians, and that's exactly what what his Christian name means. And Jesus also tells them that not only have they suffered physically, but they've also suffered spiritually. And there's a lot to be said here. A few times uh, he says this is where Satan has his throne. And so this was like, I think, a center of demonic activity. And like I, I told you, down the hill was this uh, Asclean. Uh, as, ask, 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 Asclepin—the <clears throat> name of that thing—the healing center—and they had oracles who would interpret your dreams. And these are uh, basically like like shamans. Uh, these are people who are involved in the occult, and these are people who are involved in the magic arts. And they're like astrology astrologers or dream readers in our day. And people would come here because uh, there was a bunch of these, uh, what I think are demonically inspired. Uh, Leaders And like I said, on top of that mountain uh, was the Acropolis. And on the Acropolis was this altar of Zeus. And when he says you're suffering because you're in a place where Satan has his throne, it might have been that place. And we saw that place. 800 to 1,000 feet up, overlooking the entire valley of Pergamum. And so people could see it from a long distance. And it was this huge, magnificent structure. And it was an altar, a worship place dedicated to the god Zeus. And so the question is, well, where's Satan's throne? Is it Zeus's altar? By the way, the Germans uh, uh, took it to Germany. And there's some stories about Adolf Hitler doing something with it. Is it Zeus's altar or is it the image of the emperor? Is it the image of the emperor on top of the hill where people would have to worship him as God. Either way, the point is that in Pergamum, worship was very fervent, but it wasn't to the God of the Bible. And people would travel for miles for spiritual healing, for consultation, and alcohol, and prostitution, but there wasn't this deep love for Jesus. And so Jesus says the church basically I know you're in a very difficult place. I know you're being opposed politically and spiritually and physically that you're suffering. And that at least one member of your church has been martyred and murdered. And then Jesus moves from approval to, I call it, accusation in verses 14 and 15. And so he goes on to say as well that he is displeased with them and that there are some corrections that need to be made. And so Jesus rebukes their belief and their behavior. In verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, hmm, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating uh, food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you've also... uh, There are those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We talked about the Nicolaitans in in the church at Ephesus, that they were these lorded over type uh, people. And and this is so important to us because, listen, practically, Calvary, if our life is hard and if we're struggling or suffering or being a Christian has cost us maybe a job or a relationship or a family member or in some way there's been a, a painful consequence for us, we can think that we have permission then to sin against God and to rebel a little bit. And Jesus says, no. Jesus says, I acknowledge, I understand, I see uh, your city and the atmosphere in which you live and minister, but it doesn't excuse rebellion. It doesn't excuse sin. And so then he comes along to rebuke and correct them. Jesus rebukes their belief. He rebukes their behavior. And on belief, he says, here's the problem. Verse 14, you got the spirit of Balaam in the city. Balaam was an Old Testament false prophet. And he encouraged false doctrine. He encouraged sexual sin. And Jesus said there were people in the city, and this is true in every city, kind of sadly. There are people who claim to belong to God, and they claim to speak for God, but they teach things that are contrary to the Bible that oftentimes results in sexual immorality. And so what he's saying is, it's just like the days of Balaam in the Old Testament where there's these false teachers encouraging sexual sin, but the church doesn't really mind that much. It's like in our own day when, when certain denominations, even our own denomination, United Methodist Church, they're saying heterosexual marriage is like optional. And there are other lifestyles. And there are other sexualities And there are other orientations that are perfectly acceptable in the sight of God. That same thing was happening right here in Pergamum. And Jesus says, you know, it's demonic. It's satanic. It's false. It's wrong. Even though it might be totally accepted by our culture. And then he also critiques their behavior. A lot of sexual sin. And this would include fornication, people living and sleeping together before marriage. It would include adultery where people are unfaithful to their covenant vows and people participating in sexual sin of the city. And Jesus says, you know, that's unacceptable for my people. That's unacceptable in the sight of God. And so he rebukes them for that. And he's basically saying that they are apostate. And I use that word at the beginning of the service. And so the big word for the church at Pergamum is that they were apostate. And that, that is that they would profess their faith or profess a faith that they really don't practice. Someone who's apostate says, yes, I'm a Christian, but they live contrary to the teachings of the Bible. And that's exactly what was happening here. Apostate also means renouncing your faith, kind of like Joshua Harris has done. And this happens in our day when somebody is baptized as a kid and they don't walk with Jesus as an adult. And they say, well, I'm a Christian. And the question is, well, are you? And this is also what happens when somebody is walking with Jesus as a Christian, and then they stop, and they start sinning, going into false doctrine and false teaching, and they fall astray. And what often happens then is people ask the question, well, were they they a Christian or not? And ultimately, Jesus is the one who has to make that call, not me. But such people who are apostate, they, they know exactly what they're doing. And they're living in open rebellion and they find parts of the Bible that they don't like and so they reject those teachings. And usually under that there's like a moral cause and it's often sexual and that's exactly where Romans 1 goes. It says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness because they want to sin. And then Romans 1 goes on to say, and a lot of their sin is sexual sin. And so you need to know this. Even though this letter is 2,000 years old, the human heart is still the same. It's exactly the same. Sometimes it's not that we don't know the truth. It's that we don't like the truth. And And sometimes it's not that we don't understand the Bible. It's that we want something different. And the people at Pergamum had decided there's a way for us to say, you know, I'm a Christian and I'm going to believe what I want to believe and behave like I want to behave. And Jesus says, I see and I know all. And the answer is no. The answer is no. And apostasy is something that's really tragic. It's so sad when I heard about that a month ago about Joshua Harris. But that's exactly what was happening in the city of Pergamon. Lots of apostasy and leaders who were teaching false doctrine and they were encouraging sexual sin. And a lot of people were saying we like their version of Christianity because it doesn't command us to repent. It tolerates our lifestyle. Not only does it tolerate our lifestyle, but actually affirms our lifestyle. So we don't exist to glorify God. God exists to give us permission to for us to do whatever we want. And Jesus says that's unacceptable. And how could we fall into the same trap? It's interesting. There's no church in Pergamum today. There's no Christians in that entire region. And today, in the nation of Turkey, there are some 74 million people. And when you read about the New Testament, much of it is to or from or about what is now modern-day Turkey. And today, there's some 74 million people in Turkey, and there are about 3,500 evangelical Christians. And out of 74 million people, 3,500 Christians in Turkey, according to Operation World, which has some of the best statistics that you can find on unreached people groups, that makes Turkey the most unreached nation on the earth. But there was a day when Turkey was the very center of Christianity. Christianity. Pergamum was a city that had an opportunity to go out and plant some churches and be used of God for a long time. But today, that's not the case in Pergamum. So at some point, the apostasy won. And the gospel, I won't say lost, but it ceased to be believed in and behaved by. And how could we fall? How could we fall into that same position? Number one, is your identity formed more by Christ or by culture? See, for the Pergamites, they wanted their identity to be shaped primarily by culture. Sexual sin, religious pluralism, general spirituality that was ultimately demonism. And if you decide who I am and what I believe and how I behave is going to be more shaped by culture than Christ, then you put yourself on this pathway toward apostasy. Number two, are you you compromising sexually? See, sex is an act of worship, and it's not just a physical thing. It is a spiritual thing. And that's why, for example, Romans 12 says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That's an act of worship. And if you're compromising sexually, you may confess Christ as Lord, but you are collaborating with your enemy because in sexual sin, that's one of the ways that we actually practice apostasy. And that's one of the ways that we turn from God and go each our own way. And so if you're living together or sleeping together or looking at things or doing things that you ought not be doing, you're kind of on a pathway toward apostasy, just like the Pergamites. Number three, are you compromising doctrinally? For the Pergamites, they said, yes, we believe in Jesus, but there are some things that the Bible says that are very controversial, they're very unpopular, and we're going to reject those things, and we're going to find teachers who will affirm what we want to hear, and we're going to pay them well so that we can live in rebellion with spiritual authority permitting it. And that is the teaching of Balaam. Calvary, the truth is, much of the Bible, when we first read it, we don't like it, (laughs) because it says that we're wrong. And we have to change our mind, and we have to change our behavior. And that word repent that Jesus uses here in Revelation 2, it talks about a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction, a change of behavior, a change of life. And so I would ask you, are there any places in the Bible where you are suppressing the truth when you are rejecting the truth? If so, I think you're on a pathway toward apostasy, And then number four, I just simply ask, are you an apostate? Are you somebody who professes a faith that you're not practicing? And this will affect your life. And you may or may not be a Christian. I don't know. Jesus knows your heart. You can always turn and come back to him. And that's what he invites them to do and Joshua Harris to do. And that's what he invites all of us to do. It affects your children and your children's children. Listen, today in Pergamon, you don't see any Christians because at some point, apostasy became the majority. And this can happen in your church, and this can happen in your family, and this can happen in my family. We are always a generation or two from the end of the forward progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's apostasy, wrong behavior, wrong belief that really sets us out on this course. So what does Jesus say? He gives us a few commands. Not only approval, not only accusation, but some admonition in verses 16 and 17. Number one, he says, repent. And this is to change your mind. Repentance begins in the mind. You say, you know what? I've been, what I've been thinking is wrong. And what I've been excusing is inexcusable. And the fight I've had against God mentally or academically, I need to just stop fighting and I just need to start trusting. And Jesus invites repentance. And so for some of us, this can be very hard because it's an acknowledgement that we are wrong. But I tell you what, repentance is a great gift That God gives. It's an awesome opportunity to stop doing wrong and to start doing right, to stop believing wrong and to start believing right, to stop walking away from Jesus and start walking with Jesus. So it's a great gift that God gives the Christian, and it requires a little bit of humility because it starts with, I'm wrong. You're right. I surrender. And that is the very essence of repentance. And he goes on to say, well, If not, I'm going to come to you soon, and I'm going to war against them with the sword of my mouth. And Jesus says, I don't tolerate rebellion and apostasy forever. There's going to be some consequences. And in that day, the emperor had rule, had the rule of the sword. And he could take life at any point. And he could judge. And Jesus is saying he's going to come with a sword, and he's going to war against them with the sword of his mouth, which is probably a reference to the scripture, The Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. In Ephesians 6 and Ephesians 4, it says the Word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than a double-edged sword penetrating to the joints and marrow. And so we're in this cosmic battle, aren't we? With Satan and with demons, and they work through false religion and false teaching and false doctrine and sexual sin. And Jesus says, the weapon that I have chosen... To do battle against error and apostasy and heresy is the sword. It's the scriptures. It's the word, the truth of the word of God. And so the key to avoiding apostasy is always coming back to the word of God and hearing what God would say through the scriptures. And he likens it here to a sword for battle. And so you and I need to know that when we hear a lie, we need to take it to the scripture for the truth, and when we're tempted to sin, we need to go to the Bible for instruction. When we when we've said or done something wrong, we need to go to the Bible for correction. It's the weapon by which God gives us spiritual victory. And then He says, "I'm going to give you some hidden manna." And in the days of the Israelites, you know the story. They were wandering around in the wilderness, and God sustained them. He sustained them through a provision of manna, which is kind of like a form of uh, you know miracle bread. And what he's saying is, hey, if you'll trust me, if you'll walk with me, if you'll be faithful to me, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to find a way to feed you. I'm going to find a way to look after you. And when you're in a culture that's kind of anti-Christian, that's the fear, isn't it? You know, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my security. I'm going to lose my possessions. What will happen to me? And Jesus says, I know exactly what's happening. And I hope you find this as an encouragement. And Jesus says, I'm going to find a way to put bread on the table. You trust me, and I am going to take care of you. And he goes on to say, listen to what the Spirit says. He who has an ear, let him hear to what the Spirit says to the churches. And as you read the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3... This is yet, again, kind of a common refrain that comes up where Jesus keeps saying over and over and over, he who has an ear, let him hear what this Holy Spirit is saying to the church. And so what he's saying is one of the ways we become apostate with our behavior and with our belief is that we stop listening to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. And the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible through human authors. And so one of the ways we keep our ear open to the Holy Spirit is to be in the Scriptures and to allow the Scriptures to be in us. Another way is through prayer and listening and talking to God and being filled with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit as Jesus was. And then he goes on as well that he's going to give them a white stone and he's going to give them a new name. And I brought my white stone. I picked one up. There's all kinds of white stones on top of of Pergamum. And so this is a white stone. And uh, these are so very important where he says, you know, I'm going to give you a new name. And what would happen in the Bible is oftentimes when somebody was converted, when they come to Jesus or come to a revelation of God, they would get a new name. So Abram... Became Abraham and Cephas became Peter and Saul became Paul. And to become a Christian was like a rebirth and it was like being born again. And this is connected to something called the doctrine of regeneration. And not only does Jesus die and rise to forgive our sin, but also to make us different people, to make us brand new people. And so you're not just for, you're not just a forgiven version of yourself. You are forgiven and you are a changed version of yourself. And what this means is that your identity is altogether different. You are no longer defined by what you've done or what's been done to you. You're defined by what Jesus has done for you. You're clean. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are made new. Your old nature goes away. Your new nature comes in and the Holy Spirit empowers you. And here's what happens. You start to get a new mind and you start to think differently and you also get to have new desires and you want to read the Bible and you want to meet with God's people and you want to stop sinning and you want to start learning and you want to start growing and your desires change. And all of a sudden you're like, man, I never wanted to read the Bible and I like reading it. I didn't want to hang out with Christians and now I'm looking for them. I didn't want to go to church and now I'm sitting in one and I'm actually singing. All of a sudden what I used to do, I'm ashamed of. And things I used to make fun of. That's what I'm doing. You've been born again. You've become a new person. And the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you. And to, to show that marked, massive, transformational shift in your soul, God gives you a new name because you're just a different person. And so the way it worked in this day was oftentimes when people became Christians, they would get a brand new name. they get a Christian name. And Jesus says, I'm going to... Give some of you, if you'll walk with me, I'm going to give you a brand new name. We used to sing, you know, there's a new name written down in heaven. And then he goes on to say as well that he's going to give them uh, this white stone. And let's think about this white stone a little bit. There's a little bit of a debate here as to what this actually means. Sometimes the wealthy would give away tickets to events, you know, at the theater and at the stadium. And so they give you a white stone. And, and, and this white stone was kind of like your entrance ticket. And some would say it could be referencing heaven, that if you belong to Jesus, you're going to get your first class, you know, you get your ticket to to heaven, to the kingdom of God. And some would say as well, in that day when you would stand before a judge or a magistrate, when you were up for a criminal behavior and they were going to render a verdict, uh, there would be a black stone and there'd be a white stone. And if it was a white stone, you were declared innocent. And if it were a black stone, you were declared guilty. And this may be a reference to, you know, because of the death of Jesus, our sin has been atoned for and we're actually seen as righteous, as justified in his in the sight of God. And as a result, we're not punished, but we're given freedom. Another perspective is that when you walk around Pergamon, you're going to see a lot of these uh, white stones and they're kind of everywhere. And so in 2007, I picked one up. And one of the, another tradition holds that when there had been perhaps a conflict, you know, between two families, uh, the two patriarchs, the men would come together representing their tribe, their kin, their clan, their people, and they would form kind of a truce and they would form like a covenant. And they would uh, essentially say, We are now going to commit to do life together as people. We're going to love one another. We're going to serve one another. We're going to take care of one another. We're going to look out for one another. And then these two patriarchs representing their people would take a stone. They'd take a white stone and it would be broken in two parts. And then each family was given half the stone so that in the future when their children and maybe their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren grew up together and they intermarried and they entered business together, whatever it might be, if a conflict should arise, the family would come together and they would put those two stones together and say, this is how our fathers wanted us to live. They wanted us to live together in unity as one. And he could be saying here that this is what God does with us. Though we are sinners and we're rebels and we're guilty, God comes to us in Jesus. And he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And you're going to be my people. and I'm going to be your God. And I'm going to love and bless and care for you forever. And I'm asking you to trust me and to walk with me and keep your part of the covenant, and I'm going to keep my half of the covenant. And if so, it'll be good for your life, for your eternal life, for your children, and for your children's children. And that may be exactly what Jesus is referencing here in Revelation 2 to the church at Pergamum. And so in closing, here's the real issue. The real issue is how you see Jesus. And here in this letter to the church at Pergamum, We see Jesus as exalted. He is no longer like this humble Galilean peasant, but he is resurrected from death. He is ascended into heaven. We see him ruling and reigning as God. We see him omniscient, all-knowing. He knows everything that's going on at the church of Pergamum. And he knows the false teachers. And he knows the sexual sin. And he knows who's doing and teaching what they ought not to be doing. And he sees Antipas being uh, cooked alive in this brass bowl and suffering. And he sees the altar of Zeus. And he sees the image up there of the emperor. And he sees that temple of Dionysus. And he sees exactly what's going on. And he's presented, Jesus is presented as this warrior king who comes with the sword of the word of God to bring justice and conviction of sin and new life. And so, Calvary, if you're struggling with apostasy or you know or love somebody who is, the big idea is this. You or they need to have a bigger picture of Jesus. Not just a humble, marginalized Galilean peasant that had some insightful things to say, but the crucified, risen, Lord, God, Savior, not Domitian, it's Jesus who rules and reigns over all people's times, places, and churches. And the sad story of Pergamum is that at some point, the apostasy won. And so I would encourage us to pray for Pergamum today. There's not one church in Pergamum, just kind of a legacy of apostasy. And the great myth is that it can't happen to us. It can't happen to my family. It can't happen to our church. It happened to Joshua Harris. It happened to the church at Pergamum. And the story of Pergamum is if everybody doesn't stick close to Jesus, anything is possible. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to study Your words, Jesus, to the church at Pergamum and to us. And God, it's kind of a sober moment. God, we are altogether awed that the news of a Galilean peasant would come to the land of Turkey, would come up that mountain, that Acropolis, Pergamum, that a church would be planted there, that worshipers of Jesus had gathered there. And God, our hearts are broken that there was apostasy. Our hearts are broken that today there is no church there. There are no Christians. And so God, I thank you that we get to hear your words and we get to remember who Jesus is and rejoice in what he's done. And and we pray as well, God, for the great city of Pergamum, In the surrounding region, we pray, Lord God, that a church would be planted there again. Lord, that you bless Dr. Mark Wilson, who ministers in that land as a biblical archaeologist, and that, Lord God, the legacy of apostasy would be replaced with a legacy of ministry. And so we pray for you to raise them up, Lord. Raise up your servants in Turkey. And we pray, God, for Calvary. For individuals and families to stick with you, Jesus, no matter what. And so it's in your good name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen and amen. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatever Jesus has commanded. And remember, He's with you even to the very end of the age. Amen.